Psalms chapter number 52. And man, what a blessing to be in the house of the Lord. I'm glad there's a place we can come and gain encouragement in these days. Psalms chapter number 52, and I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1, and we'll read down to the close of the chapter here. Psalms chapter number 52, verse number 1. The Bible says, Why boastest thou thyself in mischief, O mighty man? The goodness of God endureth continually. Thy tongue deviseth mischiefs like a sharp razor working deceitfully. Thou lovest evil more than good, and lying rather than to speak righteousness, Selah. Thou lovest all devouring words, O thou deceitful tongue. God shall likewise destroy thee forever. He shall take thee away and pluck thee out of thy dwelling place, and root thee out of the land of the living, Selah. The righteous also shall see and fear and shall laugh at him. Lo, this is the man that made not God his strength, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and strengthened himself in his wickedness. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. I will praise thee forever because thou hast done it. And I will wait on thy name for it is good before thy saints. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. Thank you for the word of God. Bless it to our hearts. May Christ be magnified in everything that's said and done tonight, Lord. And may you give us clear instruction from your word. And may we obey it tonight, Lord. We love you and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You know, when you read through the book of Psalms, not all of the Psalms were penned by David, but the Psalm that we've read tonight was. And uh, often there will be a little description that's given uh, in a psalm that gives us a little bit of an idea of the context of what's going on in the life of the psalmist. Uh, the little description that's given concerning this psalm says this, A psalm of David when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul and said unto him, David is come to the house of Ahimelech. Now, just to read that, if you're not familiar with the story that's being referenced here, it might be lost on you exactly the sort of gravity and weight of what David is experiencing when he takes pen in hand and under uh, instruction of the Holy Ghost, he pins down these inspired words. David, during a time in his life when he was on the run from King Saul, sought refuge uh, in a place called Nob uh, with a, a priest uh, by the name of Ahimelech, and he goes and and, and, and asks for safety, asks for food. Ahimelech gives him some of the showbread, gives him the sword of Goliath, uh, and sends him on his way. Well, whenever he's there, there's a man named Doeg the Edomite that's there and witnesses all this take place. Now, Doeg is a confidant of King Saul. He's a companion. He's a supporter, a loyalist of King Saul. And he sees this as an opportunity to ingratiate himself to King Saul. And so one day when they're in the palace and King Saul is is railing against uh, all of those that are uh, hindering him from seeing his plans come to fruition, Doeg speaks up and says, well, you know, I know where David is. Saul's saying, well, everybody's against me. You're part of this grand conspiracy. Why can't you find David? Doeg speaks up and he says, well, I know where David is. David sought refuge with Ahimelech. And so Saul sends Doeg and a number of other uh, soldiers, takes them and leads them to Nob and confronts Ahimelech about this. He accuses Ahimelech of conspiring against him. And then he goes on to slay 80 priests of the Lord, including Ahimelech. Uh, It is one of the darkest stains upon the life of Saul, and his was a pretty stain-filled life to begin with. 
And the Bible tells us that it is in these circumstances that David pins down these words. And this man that he is speaking of in verse number one, he calls him a mighty man. And there's a bit of sarcasm, I think, in that. The man that he's referencing is this man, Doeg, the Edomite. Now, you might say, well, preacher, that's good, and I appreciate the Sunday school lesson, but what does that have to do with our life? Well, when I think about what David's going through and then David's response to his trials that he's experiencing, it reminds me that you and I likewise can respond to the things that we're facing in, in many ways, similar days that we're living in. You say, well, now, what do you mean, preacher? Well, think about this. David, when he writes this down, there's three things we could say about him. Number one, David is hated. Saul hates his guts. I mean, he wants to do anything he can to try to destroy him. There's a very simple reason that Saul hated David, and that's because Saul was rejected of the Lord, and David was accepted of the Lord. He felt threatened by David's relationship with God, and he felt as though that David was a pretender to the throne that was getting ready to steal away his authority and his autonomy. And you know, it's a reminder that even in the days that we're living in, if you're a born-again child of God, you are hated by this world. And you're not hated by because there's anything so proprietarily distasteful about you, but you're hated because the relationship that you have with the Lord, because He loves you, because of Christ in you, because you have a different destiny than those that are lost walking through this world. They don't have to die in their sins and go to hell, but they recognize something different about the way that we're living. They can see Christ in us and they hate it. So I would say, number one, He is hated. Number two, I would note that He is hunted. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, David spent these years of his life constantly on the run. Never had a place that he could call home. Never had a place of of refuge and, and comfort and security other than the Lord's name and the Lord's promises. And so we could really say he's a lot like believers in this day. At this moment in David's life, this world was not his home. He was just passing through. The only hope he had, the only refuge he had was in the Lord. He had no temporal resting place where he could recline back and sit at ease and say, I'm safe and I'm comfortable and I'm right where I want to be. Man, what a reminder is it of us living in this day. Hey, we're pilgrims and strangers, the Bible says. We ought not be attached to this world. It's funny, you know, believers spend a great deal of time with uh, anxiety and aggravation and irritation over the fact that they're not so comfortable in this world. We're not supposed to be comfortable in this world. This world is not our home. It is not our resting place. But then I would say this, you know, the Bible says... This happened when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul and said unto him, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. Now, if you go and look at that story, you'll find that the way that David learns about this is Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, when his father is slain, goes and tells David what has happened. Say, preacher, what's the significance of that? Well, very simply this, David didn't find out about it until Ahimelech was already dead. And David was the very reason that Ahimelech was slain. What a great weight of guilt it must have been on David's shoulders that this man that had loved him and had had received him into his home and had had protected him, that he had gone in and and, and some might say David had recklessly done this. I mean, certainly if David had been quicker on his feet because he goes on to say that he knew that was going to happen when he saw Doeg the Edomite there that day. If that was really true, David would have been better off to take Doeg's head off right then and there, save a righteous man like Ahimelech and slay a a wicked man like Doeg, but instead he doesn't. He decides to withhold his wrath, withhold his ability to uh, change that situation. And because of that, a righteous man like Ahimelech is dead. 
say, preacher, what does that tell me? Well, it reminds me here is David. He's hated and he's hunted, but he's also haunted. So what do you mean? Well, he's carrying a great weight of, of grief and of burden because of a mistake that he's made in his life. And, you know, the truth is some of the things that you have to face are are external, but some of the things you face are internal. Some of the things that make this life a drudgery are the circumstances around us pushing in towards us. But some of it is some of the things we've done in our life that we carry with us. They likewise are burdens that we have to deal with. They likewise, man, I'm glad there's forgiveness in the Lord. I'm glad that our conscience can be cleansed and purged. But we all, I think, are are realistic enough to know that there's things that God forgives us of, but we can't forgive ourselves of. Things that God has judicially chosen to forget, but we can't forget. And we likewise are often haunted by the things that we've experienced. So there's some very strong similarities. We see David's affliction here. But then think with me for a moment about David's adversary, this man named Doag. Uh, the Bible uh, tells us really only about this episode in Doeg's life. But then we have a little bit of a glimpse into David's perspective of him in this psalm. And David really thinks three things about him. Notice number one, verse number one. The Bible says, Why boastest thou thyself in mischief, O mighty man? The goodness of God endureth continually. So David's adversary is a foolish man. He is a man that is boastful. He is a man that is prideful. He is a man that, though he knows that the judgment of God is coming, he's unwilling to recognize it. And he's still living persecuting David, even though he knows he's going to have to answer for it. You know, funny thing about it, I this world understands it can't continue on this present course forever. But still, just the hate within this world, the hate within broken man, is enough to make it persecute those that know and love the Lord. Doeg's a foolish man. Not only that, verse 2 says, is this, thy tongue deviseth mischiefs like a sharp razor working deceitfully. He's thinking about how Doeg from that day began to plot and began to conspire a way to use this to try to hurt David and hurt Ahimelech. And David says this, that Doeg is a frightening man. He's a man that has wielded the information that he has like a sword, like a razor over those that he can wield it over and has a real ability to cause destruction in people's lives. Listen, I'm not asking you to drink Kool-Aid or put on rose-colored glasses. The fact is this world sometimes can do harm to us. It can bring destruction into our heart and into our life. It can sometimes cause trouble for us. It can bring burdens upon us. So Doeg, he's a frightening man. But then look at verse 3. We note that he's a false man. The Bible says, Thou lovest evil more than good, and lying rather than to speak righteousness. In other words, everything that Doeg said, there was always some spin to it, some angle to it, some some bend to it that he could use to try to coerce and manipulate and control and destroy those around him. I'll tell you one of the most uh, aggravating, disheartening things about being a child of God in these days is how little reverence there is for the truth in the days that we're living in. I mean, it, it's unreal. Uh, the, the, as one as one person said, listen, they're, they, they, they're lying and we know they're lying and they know that we know that they're lying and yet still they're lying. I mean, we're living in days where it's just completely disregarded whether the truth matters. It's, it's trafficked in so cheaply, it's irrelevant to the average individual. And so I would say that the situation we're in, David's affliction, is similar to that. And I would say that the world that we're facing is similar to David's adversary. Now, there's some people whose answer to that is to get down in the mouth and discouraged, want to just throw in the towel, want to go and hide somewhere. And, and there's churches that make a, a business 
us out of Christians just hiding. That's all that it's aimed towards. It's just giving people a place that, uh, of hiding. But when I read David's response here, though he, he makes some, some obvious and some, some literal statements, he doesn't hide from the difficulties that he's facing, he recognizes something in verse number 8 that is astounding. Now, he's described all these things about Doeg, about the world, about wickedness, all these things about the environment that he's in and, and the trials he's facing. But notice what he says about himself. He says, but I, but I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. Can I tell you this? What goes on out there doesn't get to dictate what goes on inside here. What this world is doesn't get to dictate and decide who and what you are in Jesus Christ. And if you allow it to, it most certainly will. But you don't have to allow it to. David says, there's a lot of wickedness going on around me, but I refuse to allow that to define uh, my heart and my condition and my attitude towards the Lord. So let's think about this passage of Scripture. And I want you to notice three simple thoughts tonight about how David met the difficulty that he was facing in his life. And we could maybe describe it this way, how he faced a world filled with wickedness. How did he do that? What was his frame of mind? What was his spirit? What was his attitude? Well, notice number one, in verses four through seven, we find a word about David's relief. Say, so what do you mean, preacher? Well, there were some things that gave some consolation and some comfort to David in the day that he was living in. Verse number four says this, thou lovest all devouring words. He's still speaking to Doeg. Thou lovest all devouring words, O thou deceitful tongue. God shall likewise destroy thee forever. He shall take thee away and pluck thee out of thy dwelling place and root thee out of the land of the living Selah. You know, the first thing that gave David comfort was Doeg's destruction. You know, we live in, we live in a day of soft Christianity. Uh, we live in a day where the thought, you know, listen, if, if Christians cannot rejoice in justice, if Christians cannot rejoice in justice, then you might as well throw out about half the book of Psalms. Listen, I'd a lot rather the wicked man turn from his wickedness and in the grace of God be born again and be saved. But man, I also gain comfort in knowing there's going to come a day that God's going to lower and flatten every hill and straighten every curve. There's coming a day God's going to deal with these things far better than you can, far better than I can. Uh, one of the comforting things of the complete disillusion of our republic is that I think people have begun to recognize that justice don't live anywhere but in the word of God and in the personality of God. I mean, we're, we're living in days, and I don't want to get into the weeds here, but for a lot of years the attitude was always, man, if you don't like it, just vote different. If you don't like it, write a letter. If you don't like it, go sign a petition. And for a lot of years we were under the delusion that that would, would change the course, that that could turn the tide in things. I think most of us would recognize that we are awakening to the fact that uh, much of that is just completely moot in the day that we're living in. And you say, well, preacher, what do we do with that? Do we get disheartened, disillusioned? Uh, do we turn into a bunch of anarchists and rebels? No, man, we run to the word of God and remind ourselves that though we may not have the means and mechanism to always exact justice, God is a just God. There's coming a day, man, he's going to deal with it. There's coming a day he's going to deal with it. So David's relief at Doeg's destruction. Then verse 6, uh, again, man, this, this, some people, this would bother their Christianity. He says, the righteous also shall see... 
and fear and shall laugh at him. This is what they're going to say. Lo, this is the man that made not God his strength, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and strengthened himself in his wickedness. So he gains relief at Doeg's destruction, but number two, at Doeg's derision. Uh, let me just put it this way. David says, man, it tickles me pink to know one of these days God's going to catch up with that cat. But not only that, I'm going to be there to see it and I'm going to be there to laugh at it. And again, that's pretty disconstant with some people's perspective and attitude about Christianity. Uh, some people, it hurts their feelings all kinds of ways that God has a sense of humor. <laughs> but listen, the Bible says that, that the Lord laughs at the wicked. That he laughs at the unrighteous. And that laughter is not just merely delight. And certainly it's not pleasure at their destruction. But it is pleasure at the at the notion of justice being carried out. And David says, man, it pleases me not only to know that one of these days God's going to deal with them. But I'm going to be there to see it. I'm going to be there to watch it. I'm going to be there to recognize it. Not to boast in myself, but to boast in the holiness of God. So he gets relief at Doeg's derision. But then verse 7, let's think about how he describes this a little more closely. He says, lo, this is the man. He says, this is what people are going to say about Doeg for the rest of all eternity. Lo, this is the man that made not God his strength, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and strengthened himself in his wickedness. David has relief at Doeg's destruction and at Doeg's derision, but also at Doeg's disgrace. So in other words, David says, one of these days, God's going to judge Doeg. And when that day comes, I'm going to be there and I'm going to see it. But he says, not only am I going to see it, everybody else is going to see it. And they're going to know once and for all that God is righteous and right and that Doeg was a wicked man. I tell you, there's going to be things come out one of these days. (laughs) I don't know. A lot of it we probably won't care about when we get to heaven. Uh, I will tell you this. Uh, I have started erring on the side of conspiracy. Amen? I used to err against it, you know. Well, maybe, I don't know. Nowadays, somebody comes with it and they're like, don't you realize the Easter Bunny's real and he's the one that's running the WEF and he's deciding they're going to build a UN army out of gremlins to come and take over. And I, and I go, really? Used to, I'd be like, all right, all right, let me give you a little tinfoil there. But now, man, we're living in days. I mean, it, it, it's I, if we just run back the record and look at the statistics, we got some people we need to apologize to, you know, because uh, oftentimes many of these things that we would have thought unthinkable 10 years ago have turned out to be the case. And, you know, uh, one of the things that is that is is grievous in living in this broken world is how readily society accepts deception and accepts that which is in error and not only accepts it, but boasts in it and wields it like a weapon against those that stand for truth. But listen, child of God, gain encouragement tonight. There's coming a day that every knee is going to bow and every tongue's going to confess. There's coming a day when it's going to be brought out into the light and that which has been done in secret will be shouted from the housetops. And David says, man, it does my heart good to know that it may look like he's got away with it. It may look like like he is innocent. It might be nobody else will believe me. It might be nobody else will see it. But he says, I know what's right. I know there's coming a day that all men are going to see. You say, preacher, what do I do in this broken world? Man, it's disheartening. It's discouraging. Well, don't shun the encouragement that the justness of God provides you. Uh, Don't be so sanctified and high-minded as to not rejoice in things that God does rejoice in. 
And part of the comfort we gain as as children of God, I don't rejoice in anybody dying in their sins. I want them to turn from them and turn to God. But I absolutely rejoice in the fact that a just God is going to exact justice one day. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think you're going to have to throw out half your book of Psalms if you're going to, you and David are going to get into an argument one of these days. If you make it to heaven, all right? So I, I see David's relief, but then I notice what he says about himself in verse number eight, particularly the first portion of it. He says, but I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I see David's resilience. David says, I've begun to look at myself in a different perspective. Instead of viewing myself as a dried out bush growing in the wilderness and desert of wickedness, I've begun to recognize that really as a believer in God, I'm more like a green olive tree in the house of God. Now, first, we need to explain what he's talking about here. Because what you're thinking of is an olive tree growing up right in the middle of the church house. But I'd remind you that when David pins this down, there is no temple. The house of God is the tabernacle. And it being a fairly large structure, it was not uncommon when they would set up and pitch the tabernacle that there might be trees and there might be foliage that would be contained within the boundary of that. And so David has in mind a strong, vibrant, healthy olive tree uh, that the tabernacle of God has been set up around that thing and has provided for it a place of protection. What a beautiful picture that is. You know, in the New Testament, we're told that the word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us. It means tabernacled amongst us. The tabernacle is a picture of Christ in his humanity. And what a beautiful picture of salvation that exactly as they would do concerning the tabernacle and that olive tree is exactly what happened when you got born again. The righteousness of God was put on you and you were placed in Christ in a place where nothing can touch you. David's speaking of a few different things here that that come to my mind. Number one, notice that he's speaking of perseverance. He says, I'm like a green olive tree. Olive trees are hardy trees. They grow in the scorching heat. They would grow on the the the, the sparse soil of, of mountainsides. For instance, our Lord went to the Mount of Olives. And so these are trees that had the ability to grow places where nothing else could grow. Can I tell you something about Bible Christianity? The indwelling of the Spirit of God has enabled you to grow in places that no one else can grow. Me and my wife were talking about this the other night. We were talking about cults and the way that cults work. And we made the comment, the, the, the note, you know, you'll never find grace in a cult. Cults preclude grace because grace is the proprietary jurisdiction of God himself. And when you look at cults, they can only thrive in places where the circumstances have been carefully manicured to create an environment conducive to that end. Bible Christianity has the ability to thrive in the midst of hostility, to grow in the midst of persecution. And David says, just as that tree could grow in the hottest of the noonday sun, he says, though I'm dealing with persecution, with affliction, with trials, I don't have to yield my growth. I can continue to persevere. And he goes on to describe not only his perseverance, but that productivity. He describes a green olive tree, which are are absolutely voluminous in their production. When they're healthy, they put off an unreal amount of olives and they tend to bear no matter their age, no matter the environment. They just keep bearing fruit no matter what's going on. And, you know, that's how we ought to be in the Lord. The world doesn't get to decide whether you're productive for the Lord. When did they become your spiritual foreman? 
you get to decide whether you, hey, the Bible says that we ought to always be fruitful in every good work unto his please. I don't know what always means to you, and I don't know what every means to you, but to me what that says is I can bear fruit for God no matter where I'm at. Uh, Just like that olive tree, my productivity does not have to be hampered just because there's persecution, persecution and affliction. And then I thought about David's peace. The olive branch has always and forever been a symbol of life and of peace. You remember in the Old Testament whenever Noah sends the, uh, the, uh, the dove off from the ark and, and the dove comes back bearing an olive branch in its mouth denoting the idea that the wrath of God had abated and that there was life afresh and anew there. And even this very day when we talk about extending an olive branch, what we're saying is extending peace and the, the prospect of life to another individual. And you know, David says, you know, no matter what happens, it doesn't get to rob me of my peace. I'll tell you something your flesh don't want to hear. That peace in your heart is not contingent upon the circumstances that surround your life. The peace of God, because you have peace with God and you have peace in God, you can have the peace of God no matter what's going on around you. I'm not saying I always do. <laughs> I'm not saying that there's not times in weakness that I that I refuse to let the peace of God reign in my heart. But if I let it, it'll reign always and forever. So I see David's peace. But then I notice David's protection. He says, I'm like a green olive tree, but not just a green olive tree. I'm like a green olive tree in the house of God. In other words, in a privileged status position. If there was a tree that was inside the tabernacle, for the time that the tabernacle was surrounding it, it was considered sacred. Everything in that tabernacle belonged to God. And if they set up the tabernacle around that tree, that tree now belonged to God. And no one had a right to cut it down but God. You know, when you got born again and put in Christ, you got bought out. And now you belong to Jesus. No one has a right to cut you down except Him. He can. And if he chooses to do so, he will. And I, when I say cut down, I don't mean spiritually, but I mean in your temporal life. Uh, but certainly we don't have to live in constant, continual fear. We have the protection of God upon our life. You say, preacher, what would have to happen? What if somebody came in and wanted to cut that tree down? Well, they'd have to get past the outer court. They'd have to get past the priest. And they'd have to get past God himself to do it. And in the same way, if the devil wants to get to our life, he's going to have to get past God to do it. So I see David's resilience. But then finally, and I'm done tonight, I want you to notice David's response. He says, but I'm like a green olive tree in the house of God. And then he goes on to explain what he means by that. He says, I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. I will praise thee forever because thou hast done it. And I will wait on thy name for it is good before thy saints. So you say, all right, preacher, I recognize that I can gain comfort I can gain relief in the fact that there's a just God that's going to deal with all these things. I, I, I see the resilience that I have in the person of Christ because like this olive tree, I've been put in Christ. There are certain privileges and protections that are afforded to me. And if I will avail myself of, of, of what Christ has given me, then I can enjoy that perseverance, productivity, peace, and protection. But preacher, how do I do it? How do I do that in my life? Well, notice David's response. And he basically says three things. He is determining or resolving in himself that these three things are going to be a reality for his life. Notice, number one, his position would be stationary. He said, I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. 
He says, I'm not running to another refuge. I'm not running to another place. I'm going to stay right here and trust in God. He's not going to be moved from a position of faith or of reliance upon him. You know, in many ways, I think of the three statements, this is the most closely connected with that of the thought of this olive tree because one thing that you could bank on was that olive tree wasn't going to uproot itself and walk off. It was going to stay where the life was. It was going to stay where it had been planted. You say, preacher, what can I do in these wicked days? I don't know what to do. And, you know, we have an innate hunger to do things. Uh, we think that, that, and I guess we get this from a young age, and, and I'm still like this, man. I don't like to sit still. I get fidgety. I need one of them things the little kids spin all the time that they fight over. I don't, they didn't diagnose ADHD when I was young, and that's the only reason I'm not pilled up today. Because, I mean, I'm just fidgety, you know? I, I want to be busy, I want to be active, I want to be doing something. And you know, spiritually, that's often the case in our lives as well. We say, preacher, I want to do something. You say, what do I do, preacher? Well, just go ahead and root and anchor yourself down. Stay plugged in in your relationship with the Lord, and purpose in your heart that none of these things shall move you. Be steadfast, immovable in the work of the Lord. Make sure you're not going to be pushed off course and off track. He, he determines that his position would be stationary. Number two, he determines that his praise would be ceaseless. He says, I will praise thee forever. And here's why, he says, because thou hast done it. And you say, preacher, what's it? Well, what's not it? I'm just going to let that soak in for a minute. Some of y'all have trouble with Dr. Seuss, all right? So what's not it? Now, of course, if we're giving just a strict exegesis of the passage, I probably David is, he's talking about one of two things. He's either talking about the mercy of God in his life and God protecting him and watching over him in this way, or he's talking about the judgment of God that is to come and to fall upon Doeg. But I just say this. You say, preacher, why should I praise him? What has he done? What has he not done? What in your life is not attributed to the grace and mercy of God? David says, I'm not short on things to praise him for. David says, even when I don't have a plan, I can praise him. Even when I don't have prospects, I can, I can praise him. Even when I don't have a potential direction to go, I can praise him. I know that no matter what's going on, I ought to still be offering him praise. Man, we're so bad to murmur and complain. We are, and we find all kinds of creative ways of doing it and making it seem sanctified. But wouldn't it be far better if we just go ahead and threw that praise out of our, or that, that complaint out of our mouth and put some praise in our mouth? If we said, no matter what happens, I'm just going to keep praising him. David says, if I'm praising him, I won't curse him. If I'm praising him, I won't slander him. He says, I'm just going to praise him forever and forever. So he says his position would be stationary and his praise would be ceaseless. And finally, and I'm done tonight, he denotes that his patience would be steadfast. He says, I will wait on thy name, for it is good before thy saints. In other words, David says, I'm not going to rush to try to resolve this myself. And by the way, he didn't. God brought judgment upon Doeg. David didn't have to bring judgment upon him. When the time was right, God did it. But here's what David said. I'm not going to get ahead of God. I'm going to wait and allow God to govern and to direct my life. He says, uh, here's why I'm going to do it. And I like this. He says, I will wait on thy name. Now, what does he mean by that, thy name? Well, likely he means on the justice and credibility of God's name. 
Now, he's not waiting on someone to say the name of God. What he's saying is, I know that the name of God, he describes it in the next phrase. He says, for it is good before thy saints. He says, I know that the name of God is good. You know, what does it mean to have a good name? You ever heard someone make this statement uh, that tell you, you know, uh, let me borrow some money or whatever it is. And they'll say, I'm good for it. And what they mean, number one, don't believe them when they say that. Number two, (laughs) what they mean when they say that is, you know, my reputation and, you know, I keep my word and I pay my debts. When David says about the name of the Lord, it's good before thy saints. What he's saying is this. Hey, the Lord has a good name before the people of God. He's never broken a promise. He's never told a lie. He's never let anyone down. And when David says, I will wait on thy name, he's saying, I'm not going to do things in my name. I'm going to wait on God to do this in his name for his glory. And I know I can wait on his name because it's a good name. He's always kept his promises. So he purposes in his heart. He's going to do what? Well, his position would be stationary. Don't run on God. Uh, wait on God. Let God work in your in your life. Uh, don't move away from Him. His praise would be ceaseless. Keep trusting Him. Keep praising Him. Keep giving glory to Him and wait on His name for Him to carry it out in His way. I promise you, even if you could find a way to do it, it wouldn't be as good as how God would do it. The preacher, what does all this mean for me? Well, it means this, that the world doesn't get to dictate the terms of your Christian testimony. It doesn't get to determine whether you're faithful to the Lord. It doesn't get to determine whether you're fruitful for the Lord. Only you get to decide that. So instead of sitting around down in the mouth, you know, sorry looks on our faces, we ought to instead take encouragement in the Lord and go on and serve Him. We ought to be the most rejoicing people in the world. We're on the winning side. we got nothing to complain about. Let's get our hearts set upon him and let's maintain our faith in him. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. The altar's open. If God spoke into your heart, I want you to come even now. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. Lord, we love you and we ask it in Christ's name.